Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm excited to discuss uh, the whole concept of uh, the the tabernacle. I guess that's how they would um, uh, translate it into English. But but what we call the the Mishkan, and and the Mishkan was the the, the, the place of worship. It was sort of like the the central headquarters for for um, for the Jewish people in order to connect heaven and earth. It was that 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 portal, if you will. And it evolves over Jewish history into, um, into the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Yerushalayim. And to show you the, the centrality of this, um, the, the, the epic of Mashiach, the era of perfection that we're destined for, that we're heading to, is sort of like synonymously referred to as the time of the rebuilding of the third Beis HaMikdash, the third Holy Temple. So, in other words, this, this portal, if you will, this, this, this place... Um, that Hashem himself refers to as a place where I'll dwell in, um, is really this, this central connection between heaven and earth. So it's really very important to understand it. And the Torah itself, the five books itself, um, spends a tremendous amount of time talking about the measurements of it and, and what, what, um, what furniture, if you will, what vessels were, were inside of it and exactly how to design it. So when you see how much attention... Hashem himself lavished on the description of it and the details of it, you realize the centrality of it in all of creation. So it might sound a little bit technical, but that's kind of like the overview of it, just this connection between heaven and earth. But let's, um, let's get a little bit more philosophical underpinning behind it, and then we'll get a better sense of um, some, some more amazing things about Parshish Truma, which really introduces the discussion about the, um, the Mishkan. Uh, I mean the tabernacle, this place of worship, but I'm going to be referring to it as the Mishkan. Um, so the Ramban famously says that what the, what the Mishkan was, was a reenactment, an ongoing reenactment of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So we know that in terms of, just in terms of human history, really the, the central event, the central turning point in human history is the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And we know that, that what distinguishes Judaism from all other religions is the fact that other religions have one primary prophet who got, according to them, the word, and, and they ask their followers to, to trust that they received the word, right? But it was one individual. What distinguishes and what makes Judaism absolutely unbelievable, just totally amazing, is that we say it wasn't one person. It was two and a half million people at Mount Sinai who all experienced this simultaneously, the exact same thing simultaneously. And that when God spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, on top of Mount Sinai, that we were privy to that discussion so that we simultaneously experienced it and we witnessed the key prophet receiving the word from God. So that separates Judaism and makes it absolutely quantumly different from every other religious tradition. Significantly, both Christianity and Islam base their foundation on the fact that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. So those religions absolutely agree about this event as well. They go on to say other things, but it's very compelling and very important to show that everyone agrees that this event took place. So now, Hashem 
wants to continue this amazing revelation at Mount Sinai. So how is he going to do it? Since people aren't going to just encamp around Mount Sinai for the rest of eternity. That's not God's plan. He wants us to build up the world and everything else. So he creates this amazing construct called the Mishkan, which is this traveling tabernacle, which recreates the experience of having been at Mount Sinai. You see, what is the essence of the Mishkan? It's a special room in it called the Kadosh Kadoshim, translated as the Holy of Holies, where we had the Ark of the Covenant, right? Which held the tablets of the Ten Commandments. So in other words, just like the essence of the Mount Sinai experience was receiving the Torah, the essence of the Mishkan was the place that held the tablets. And just like miracles took place at Mount Sinai, miracles took place in the tabernacle, tabernacle itself, in the Mishkan itself, and in the Beis Amigdash itself. In Pirkei Avos, they list 10 miracles which were ongoing in the Beis Amigdash at all times, so that you could go and experience this supernatural reality of, his, of existence. One, one of the 10 miracles, just because I just think it's so visual and so cool, there, there are many of them, but I'll just point out one of them, is that the smoke from the Mizbeach, from the altar where, where offerings were, were put, always stayed in an exact straight line ascending all the way up to heaven. In other words, even in the strongest winds, it remained this straight line going up into heaven. And that was this miracle, right? Again, you would go to the Mishkan and you would experience all these miraculous things, just like at Mount Sinai, and it held the tablets, the Ark of the Covenant, Right? Just like we got the Torah at Mount Sinai. So that's the Ramban. Now I want to give you um, a little insight into this, the, the golden ark that, that, that held the tablets. Um, and this is based on something from Rabbeinu Bechaya. And I'm going to add a little PS. I didn't see it inside. Maybe he says the, my PS also, but whatever it is, I just want to tell you what, what he says. Something very cool. The, 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 thing that, the, the, the thing that held the tablets, right? It's got to be something very special. These are going to hold these miraculous things that the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments on. You can imagine that vessel that's going to hold that is going to be super special. And it was. It was called the Aaron HaKodesh. Aaron is um, translated as Ark. Okay? And you spell it Aleph, Resh, Vav, Nun. All right? Now, Rabbeinu Bechaya points out something very cool. He says, Aaron, remember, Aleph, Resh, Vav. If you rearrange those letters, it spells the word Or, which means light. Now, I'm going to add this, but maybe Rabbeinu Bechaya says it as well. I don't know. The next letter is Nun. Nun, we know, is the number 50. Kabbalistically speaking, the number 50 is very significant because we talk about something called the Shar Hamishim, which means the 50th gate, which means the topmost part of heaven. So when we talk about the number 50, we're talking about, it's sort of like, um, it's an encrypted way um, in Torah discussions of talking about the level of the infinite. So now let's revisit this word, Aaron, which held the Ten Commandments, which was the centerpiece of the Mishkan, which was duplicating the Mount Sinai experience, okay? So now listen to this. So the Aaron, again, the Ark that held the tablets, can be understood, that word Aaron could be understood, that place which holds the light 
of the 50th level. Right? Because Aaron is Or Nun, the light of the 50th. Right? And what else? How else do we see that the Torah is the 50th? Because the Torah was given the 50th day after we left Egypt. So the Torah is literally the light of the 50th. Right? So you see it both in time and in space. Right? So it's, it's unbelievable what's contained just in the word Aaron. But if you, if you think, like, this is what's holding the Torah, it's got to be good. It better be good. Well, it is good. So there it is. Okay. So, so let's keep on going further. We know that it was to recreate the Mount Sinai experience. But the Ramban says something else, which is very, very meaningful. You see, you have to understand, if you, if you just look at the way the Torah is organized, in terms of, let's say, the narrative of the Torah, just, just, just the flow of the presentation of the Torah, you see that it begins with a lot of stories. And Reb Nachman of Breslov said, I heard from Reb Shlomo, that, that, that Hashem is the greatest storyteller in the world, right? And that Hashem loves stories. And that our lives are basically stories. God is telling more stories through our lives. That's, that's what's going on, you know? So, but now all of a sudden there's a shift in the Torah. Because really the Torah begins, as you all know, the creation of the world. And then it talks about Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and the, our holy mothers as well. And then the tribes, and then going down into Egypt, getting out of Egypt, right? All the plagues and wonders, receiving the Torah at Mount Sinai. Okay, great. All that is more, more or less in story form, right? And then all of a sudden, the way the Torah presents itself shifts very majorly. And it starts with Parsha's Truma, and it goes really through the end of Parsha's Vayikra. So the, whole, the, the rest of the book of Exodus, Sefer Shmos, and more or less all of the next book, Leviticus or, or Sefer Vayikra, is all going to go really into nitty-gritty detail about how the Mishkan functioned exactly. Right? It's tremendous detail. Okay. So... So what happened? A lot of people, like, they tune out at that point because it's sort of like, you know, I can't deal, you know, it's sort of like measurements and, you know, all these particulars. I, 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 it's not holding my interest. What, what is going on exactly? So, so the Ramban says something amazing. He says, just look at it on a, on a narrative level. What's going on right now is that now that the, the Jewish people are free and now that we have the Torah... Now our job is to be a light unto the nations, right? And just like the Mishkan was to be a dwelling place for godliness, right? What our function right now is, is turning the entire world into a Mishkan, right? To turn the entire world into a place openly revealed, a dwelling place for God. Now, of course, on a deeper level, it's already a, a dwelling place for God because God saturates all of reality, right? But our job is to reveal that truth, right? See, the thing is, is that the Kutzker Rebbe says something very, very, very deep. He says, he asks the question, where is God? So you think, well, you know, I'm spiritual. I know the answer to that. God is everywhere, right? He says something way better, way, way better. He says, God is where you make a place for him. Now, let's just, let's just try to understand that for a moment. You see, God is everywhere. But if I'm speaking bad about other people, and if I'm cheating at business, 
God can be absolutely everywhere, but in a way, what does it matter? Because I haven't made a place for him. You see? So when I actually make a place for him, then God, so to speak, flows through me into the entire world and it becomes revealed. And that's, that's the stage of civilization, of the history of the world that we've been working on since the Garden of Eden, which is that seamless flow from above through us and becoming revealed openly. So God is where we make a place for him. That's, that's the thing. Okay, so, so now I want to go, um, I want to go deeper into, into kind of the mechanics of this, into what's, what's the idea of, I'm going to bring you a, 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 a Torah from the Balaturim in a moment about the word truma, right? And then we're going to really try to explore it. Um, so, but before we do, one more bit of preparation for it, which is the whole concept of, of a uh, mishkan, okay? So we know that on some level, as we just said, the mishkan is this, is this building, is this structure, is this central point, right? Um, we know that it's a porthole, really, connecting heaven and earth. All this is great. All of this is great. You know, again, just to revisit the, the, the structure of the Aaron, which held the tablets of the Torah, you know, it was made out of gold, and there was a golden cover on it. And on that golden cover were two angels, right? And, you know, just as an aside, but it's just something we should all know, and it's such a, such a great point, so simple, but so powerful, I think, is that we know that we can't make images of angels. That, that, that actually violates the second commandment, right? Which is not to have any any idols or any idol worship. So you can't produce images of, in three dimensions especially, of things in heaven. So if that's the case, how is it possible that in the Holy of Holies you had two golden angels sitting on top of the Torah? Right? How, how is it possible? According to Halacha. And you know what the answer is? It's such a, it's such a great answer. Because God said do it. <laughs> And if you make it in your studio to like carve out golden idols, whatever it is, God says, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> so, so anyway, but the point that I really wanted to make was that here you see in the ark itself a microcosm of heaven and earth. Because above you have these angels, and we know that there are angels in heaven, right? And if, you, if that terminology is a little medieval for you, <laughs> You know, just think of it in terms of energy, right? Because it's all we're talking about is energy and light, ultimately, anyway, right? So, so you have angels above, and then you have the earth below. And the Torah, which is God's will, right, fills the entire structure, right? And um, as we always say, the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. So there you have like the Torah informing the entire structure itself. Okay? But let's get back to this idea of a Mishkan itself. So it says that when Hashem, that when we dedicated the Mishkan, when we finished it with all of its particulars and everything else like that, and by the way, um, the question is asked, I think also by the Ramban, 
which is how did people who were slaves and were basically just doing like a basic sort of brute construction get the incredible skills to make these incredibly elaborate, delicate, sophisticated pieces of, um, you know, gold work and all the, all the stuff that needed to be done. Like, where, where did they, how did they acquire those skills? And, and it says that, that, that because they were willing to try, God filled their heart with wisdom and, 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 and allowed them to do it. So it, it's an interesting thing for us just on a practical level in our own lives. A lot of times we think that if I don't have that exact skill set, I'm not even going to try to begin with. But what we don't realize is sometimes the, the, the very fact that we're willing to try, that in itself creates a vessel that God fills with the wisdom later. And that, and that it begins with our yearning to be able to do something. And that is what happened in terms of the construction of all these very elaborate pieces in the, in the, um, for the Mishkan itself. But again, I want to bring another teaching, which is the following. That it says that when we finally finish this amazing structure, and by the way, one more point, it never says this point, this structure was destroyed. It never says that the Mishkan was destroyed. It says that the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed two times, right? The Holy Temple in Jerusalem. But this Mishkan exists someplace. Just something to file away. Okay. So, so going forward, when we finished the Mishkan, it says that God rejoiced the same way he rejoiced when he finished creating the entire world. Now, if that's the case, we have a big question. We've uh, mentioned it many times. It says in the Gomorrah that if a verse in the Torah, if a Pasuk in the Torah begins with the word Vayahi, that this portends something negative. If a verse begins with the word vahaya, this means something positive is happening, right? So, so, so in Parsha Shmini, which talks about the dedication, the completion of the Mishkan, it begins with the word vayahi. So now we have a big question, which is, we just said that the rabbi said that God rejoiced like when he finished creating the entire world, when we finished the Mishkan, and yet, the first Pasuk describing the completion of the Mishkan starts with the word Vayihi, which portends something negative. How do you reconcile these two things? So the Rishina Rebbe says something amazing. He says, he says, you know why it's Vayihi? You know what the Ayve, so to speak, was? Because each one of us was supposed to be the Mishkan. It wasn't supposed to be a building. We, individually, each one of us was supposed to be this divine structure. So, so that's, you know, if you think about that, that can give you chills. Now, let me just extend that point for a moment, because there are real interesting sort of like halachic um, Mashiach implications to that. So I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. Over the course of Jewish history, it used to be that if someone wanted to bring an, an offering to God, you could build um, a, an altar and you could make this offering to God, right? You know, you could, in your backyard or wherever you wanted, you could, you could do that. If you were traveling through the desert and something, you know, happened that you wanted to mark the occasion with it, you just build an altar and you make an offering to God. 
when God made the Beis Hamikdash, all of a sudden things became very centralized, and these private um, offering places, these private places of sacrifice, were all of a sudden like asert, meaning that you couldn't do it anymore. We now had one national communal place to do it, and that's 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 where it was done in Shiloh in the Beis Hamikdash. That's, that's where it was done. The Holy Temple in Jerusalem, that was the place. Now listen to this, something very amazing. I saw from the Sforno that when, when, when basically the world reaches its ear of perfection, what we call Mashiach, which it's destined for, which everything is driving toward, human beings will reclaim their status individually as being Mishkans. And as such, we will once again be able to make private altars. Because each one of us will be, so to speak, a lightning rod for the Shekhinah. Right? God's sort of presence. So, so this idea that each individual was destined to be the Mishkan, and that's why Parsha Shmini begins with the word Vayahi, which portends something negative, and yet God's so happy that the Mishkan's completed. Why? Because the Rishner Rebbe says, Ay, because it wasn't supposed to be a building, it was supposed to be us. But you see that it will be us again. That that, that, that will be restored. That will be restored. That is our personal destiny as well. Okay. So now we have the homework that we can get to the point that I really want to make. So, so the Balaturim brings brings. Uh, a very interesting teaching. He says the word truma, now remember, truma is the name of this parsha, this portion of the Torah, that's talking about the construction of the Mishkan, of this tabernacle, of this portal between heaven and earth, between, as the Ramban put it, this ongoing recreation of the Mount Sinai experience, right? Of this turning point in terms of turning the entire world into a dwelling place for godliness on the revealed level. Okay, so that's all contained in this word truma. Okay, because that's the name of the parsha that starts spelling all of this out. Now, interestingly, I'll just give you an aside, which is that um, there's a debate about whether or not we were supposed to ever make the mishkan. Okay, now I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Rashi brings that the construction of the mishkan was actually a fixing for the sin of the golden calf. Okay? So that means, if you think about it, if we never worshipped the golden calf, then we would have never done the, we never have needed the Mishkan. The Zohar says that the fact that we have Parsha's Truma, which is talking about um, constructing the Mishkan in the Torah, before the Torah brings the whole episode of the golden calf, means that we were always supposed to have a mishkan. That it wasn't just, a, it may have also have been a fixing for the golden calf, but the fact that the Torah brings the whole commandment to build a mishkan before it ever talks about the golden calf shows you that it was always our destiny to have a mishkan. That's what the Zohar says. Okay. So now let's get to the Balatur. The Balatur says the word truma can be broken down into two parts. Okay, the word Torah is spelled completely in Truma, and then the letter Mem. 
So truma is Torah mem. That's what the Balatorim says. And he explains why mem. Because mem is the number 40. And the Torah was given over 40 days on Mount Sinai. Okay? So that's, that's what the Balatorim says. Truma is Torah mem. Torah, 40. 40 days on Mount Sinai. Okay, I want to expand on this idea from the Balatorim now. Okay? So... So Mem is also very interesting. The rabbis teach something very, very interesting about the letter Mem. They say that the letter Mem is actually a description of the entire birthing process. All right? That if you look at the letter Mem, and we're talking about um, not the final Mem, which is like a box, right? That's something else. We're talking about the regular letter Mem. That really there's a, a, a space in the middle. That's like a woman's womb, Okay, and the mem is the number 40, that the gestation period of a baby is like 40 weeks. And then there's an opening on the bottom of the mem, and that's where the baby comes out. So in the letter mem, you have the time of the gestation of a baby and a picture of the birthing process as well. So now, let's revisit this idea of truma. Truma, what did we say? Truma is the construction of the mishkan, right? But it's also Torah and mem. Now, the mem is the whole birthing process. Now, it says in Gomorrah Nida that while we're in our mother's stomachs, we learn the entire Torah. So you see another level to this idea of Torah Mem. Because if Mem is the whole womb situation and the whole birthing process, isn't it interesting, Torah Mem, that we're learning the entire Torah inside of our mother's womb? Right? Now, let's expand this idea further. What does Truma mean? Truma means a, um, an offering. It means an offering. So, so at Mount Sinai, and we said Truma is talking about the Mishkan, which is the ongoing um, recreation of the Mount Sinai experience. Okay? Now, at Mount Sinai, God gave the Torah, as we said, not just to the two and a half million people approximately that were there, but it says anyone who is ever going to convert to Judaism... Their soul was at Mount Sinai. Not only that, but anyone who hadn't been born yet, their soul was also at Mount Sinai. Which means that all of us were at Mount Sinai one way or the other. Okay? So Reb Shlomo asks one of my favorite questions that I ever heard from him. He said the following. If we all were at Mount Sinai and we all got the Torah at Mount Sinai... What do we need to learn it again in our mother's womb for? (laughs) You hear the question. In other words, we already got the Torah. So what do we have to get the Torah again for? So he says the following, something, a a fantastic answer. He says, at Mount Sinai, he says, really, all of us have two, two missions. There's the national mission, 
right? What it means to be a, a, a member of Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel, right? To be a person in this world, right? Because the Torah speaks to all people. Everyone has a share in the Torah, like Jews and non-Jews. Non-Jews have also the seven mitzvahs from the children of Noah. So the Torah is absolutely a universal vision for all of humanity. So, so Mount Sinai gave us the global mission. But what is it that we learn inside of our mother's wombs? What it is that I, you, each of us individually have to accomplish in this world? That's the, that's the, personal, that's the personal mission statement. That's what we learn there. Okay? So... So interestingly, that's, that's, that's the end of what Reb Shlomo says on that point. Interestingly, the Torah continues and says that after we're born, an angel touches us like above the lip and we forget the Torah that we learned, right? That we learned inside of seemingly our mother's womb, right? So I want to ask a question on this, which is, you know, it doesn't say that we forgot the, 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 the Torah at Mount Sinai. See, in every generation, we'll always have our global mission. And we'll always remember, like the 613 commandments, what it is that we have to do on the macro level. But isn't it interesting that, that God, by design, causes us, by design, to forget what our personal mission is? Right? Because there are really two levels of forgetting. There's the level of forgetting where, how could you forget? <laughs> right? Like it says in Perke Avos, it says that a person who forgets the Torah that they learn is actually chayv. It's actually, you know, responsible on some level not to forget and that there's, a, there's an obligation to review one's lessons so that they don't forget. So there's that type of forgetting. But then there's this type of forgetting that was divinely ordained that we're born and everyone forgets. This is a, you know, so why would God make us purposely forget when you see that remembering is so important? So I think that you could give a lot of answers to this. I think one beautiful answer is that we didn't really forget. (laughs) That's one answer. That deep, deep down, we know. And so that when we hear it again, then it resonates in a very, very deep way with us because we have a trace memory of of what it is. I think perhaps another answer that you could give is um, is that we we have a kind of a, a general rule, which is if something is given to you for free, you don't value it. You know, believe it or not, in psychology one of the aspects of the treatment of going to a psychologist is actually having to pay the psychologist. Believe it or not, that would be surprising. You would think, you know what, in the best case scenario, I would have the greatest therapist in the world and it would be for free, right? That would be the best case scenario. So according to the principles of psychology, that's actually not the case. That actually part of your treatment is the amount of money that you have to pay in order to see the psychologist. And there are different reasons for that. But one of the reasons is, is because you will value the experience more and you will take it more seriously if you have to pay for it. And we see this idea 
applied in, in many aspects of life, which is if something comes very easily for you, you don't value it so much. You know, people who have certain gifts, a lot of, that to- a lot of the time, they don't take those gifts that seriously. And, and, you know, it says even by Moshe Rabbeinu, the Gomorrah talks about this, that because it says, um, there's a passage in the Torah that says, what does God want from you? And Moshe explains, only that you should fear God. And fear, you know, that, mean, that means a lot of things, not just be afraid of God, it means to be in awe of God, right? That's it. Fear is an English word. Yira is something much more exalted. And it's a spectrum. There's the higher year and the lower year. The lower year is fear of punishment, but the higher year is just like your mind is being blown out by the infinity of God by all times, you know? And it's just like, so you, a person goes up and down the spectrum, but, but, but Moshe says, just have that, only have that. <laughs> and so the, the sages of the Gomorrah say, this is the sages saying, is that such a small thing to have? Like, you know, we're talking about, you know, this amazing, like, recognition of God at all times in your life. And, and Moshe says, what does God want? Just that you should have that. Just only that you should have that. And they're like, wait a second. That's a huge thing. So, so listen again, the simplicity and the directness of this, of this, of this mushal, of this um, metaphor is just astounding. The Gomorrah says, you know what? For Moshe, it was a small thing. And they say, what can this be compared to? Someone needs, only has small pots and needs a large pot. So they go up to someone who has like a lot, a lot of large pots. And, he's, and they say, do you have a large pot? Because they really need it. And, and he goes, yeah, I have a large pot, no problem, here you go. So for him who has large pots, having a large pot, having a large pot is not a significant thing. And that is, if you think about it again, don't be fooled by the simplicity of that metaphor. Don't be fooled by that. That's talking, that's an amazing insight into all of our personalities and into the human condition. If you have something, for you, it's totally normal. It's totally normal. You know, I, I remember I, at, at college, I'll, I'll mention Harvard just because this is probably a real Harvard type thing. There was this guy who um, was from South Africa, and I think his father owned like gold mines or something like that, or diamond mines or something. Very wealthy guy. And, um, and he, was, he met someone from the, um, the Philippines who was in our class. And I think his father was like a, a, a political prisoner or something like that for years and years and years. And I think like wrote like, like this like very important like book on like little tiny sheets of toilet paper. Right? I mean, just like, you know, and in a very great place of great oppressiveness and, and in, 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 in great poverty and everything like that. And, and he was talking to that guy. And, um, but what he had heard in a different context was that in the Philippines, you know, without all that much money, you could live like a king. Right? And so he was talking to this guy who lived in absolute poverty, whose father was, compl- was a political prisoner for years, who's writing like tiny little letters on pieces of toilet paper, right? And said, oh, you have such a magnificent country. <laughs> because from his point of view, it's sort of like, I grew up wealthy and all there is is wealth in the world, right? So, you know, he, he had no way of appreciating the other person's circumstances at all, you know? So, so this is how it is with 
With us, I'll give you a kind of a crazy uh, example just to try to hammer this thought a little bit more. Imagine a baby Ruth bar, okay, inside of its package, right? The baby Ruth bar, as it exists inside the wrapper, is just a baby Ruth bar, right? It doesn't even necessarily know what it is. It just is what it is, right? But everyone around it looks at it and goes, ooh, that's a baby Ruth bar, because <laughs> on the outside it reads baby Ruth, right? So, so when we look at each other, like our own internal reality, a lot of us, like, like to go back to Moshe for a moment, Moshe had this amazing repository of, of year of wisdom, of like unbelievable stuff. But since it's him, like so to speak, the baby Ruth bar, Lahavdil, but all that's what it is. What does he have to compare to, right? But from the outside, right, you look at another person and you go, oh, from the outside you see, oh, what do you see? You see his, all these material things. This person has this, and this person has that, and this person has this. And you think, judging by the, the rapper, so to speak, that that's the essence of the person. But meanwhile, there's a completely different consciousness of the person, which is just the inside of the person, just existing as they exist and not really knowing anything else. How could they? Oh, you are only you. No one else is you. Only you are you. So who else can be inside your brain? No one else can be inside your brain. So the uniqueness of an individual and, and the fact that we don't always appreciate our gifts and what it is that we have, you know? So, so the idea now is that if someone just hands you the truth, if we weren't, to, if we, if we weren't, so again, let's revisit the question. Why does God make us forget what it is that we have to accomplish? Because if you just knew what it was that you have to do, and if it just came easily to you, you wouldn't take it seriously in the same way as if you have to earn the information yourself. So there are certain things that we know, because that's the national mission. There are certain things that, that we know we're supposed to do. And that's true. So we have a basic framework of understanding. If you go, you know what? I know what my personal mission is in, is in life. To eat as much bacon as humanly possible. You say, well, wait a second. No, no, no. That contradicts with the national mission. So now all of a sudden you realize an aspect of your personal mission because your personal mission has to sync with the national mission. Right? We, where do we see that fusion? Yaakov Avinu. We're all children of Yaakov. Yaakov had two, right? Jacob, our father. Jacob had two names. What was it? There was Yaakov and Israel. Right? Where do we get the name Israel, which is the name of our nation? From Jacob. In other words, here you have the fusion of the personal identity and the national identity in one. All of us have that aspect. We have that aspect of ourselves, which is the personal mission, and then we have the national mission. Right? And that's also fused into one. Those are different sides of us. So, so we have to know that our personal mission necessarily has to sync on some level with the national mission. Right? Like, I know how I'm going to advance the cause of Israel through the proliferation of idol worship. No, no, you, no, no. 
Because your personal mission, if you want to discover it, will be perfectly in sync on some level with some dimension of the national mission. So, so that's, a, that's a key to sort of like helping you to at least eliminate, it may not tell you what it is that you have to do, but it will help you to clarify the things that you don't have to do, or perhaps shouldn't do, right? Okay. So, so now let's take it to the next step and we'll wrap it up. How do you do it? <laughs> How do you do it? Right, we always try to be practical. So there's a beautiful teaching from Perke Avos. I was discussing with my, my great friend, Jason, and, uh, and, and, and he brought out this teaching, and I want to go into it a little bit more, which is in Perke Avos, you know, we talk about in, in, like in the American system of government, we talk about checks and balances, right? You know, the, the president can't get too out of control because Congress is looking at him and the Supreme Court is looking at them. And the Supreme Court can't get too out of control because Congress is looking at them and the president's looking at them. And Congress can't get too out of control because the president and the Supreme Court are looking at the laws that they pass. So everyone is kind of, it's checks and balances, right? So we have our own system of checks and balances as well. And one presentation of that is it says in Perke Avos that you should take upon yourself a rav and that you should also have a friend. And that's an interesting system of checks and balances. Your Rav is going to tell it to you like it is, right? And your friend necessarily is going to be, if they're a friend, is necessarily going to be biased on your behalf, right? And so in a way you'll think, oh, like the rabbi told me this, it's too harsh, he doesn't understand me at all, right? then the friend will be advocating on your behalf, right? Because that's what a friend is. And then between the two, you should be able to have a path where you can understand what it is that you're supposed to do, right? And um, interestingly, so everyone needs a, a rav, which is a halachic authority, someone who you can ask a question to, because really we're supposed to remove ourselves from a place of doubt. Like, living with doubt is a very difficult thing, especially when it's something that there's an actual answer to. See, some questions are more cosmic and existential, and really, no one can answer them. Only you can answer them. And then, even then, you can't really answer them, but you do the best you can, right? But there are other answers, which are, there are other questions like, when does the next train leave from Philadelphia? <laughs> that information can be get, gotten if you ask the proper person. Right? That's very, very find-outable. So a Rav can help you in terms of, you know, those type of questions. And one shouldn't have, like, am I supposed to be doing this on Shabbos? Am I not supposed to be doing that on Shabbos? What's the answer? Is that, what about I just got this money or this business thing? What's the proper thing to do in this case? You ask a question. You ask a question. And I heard a beautiful story in the name of um, Rav Moshe Feinstein, who is, you know, the great halakhic authority of the last generation, and, um, and the story went like this. There was a, 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 a woman, an older woman, who, who was, you know, like a very pure, very sincere, but, but not a, a learned woman at all. And she came to him with a question. You know, you have those, um, uh, in the kitchen, you have like a needle where you can actually sew like a turkey, say, right? Where you, you, you 
put stuffing in the turkey, and then it's like a needle that closes it up so that it'll cook in there, right? So she had taken that needle, and she had sewn up her husband's pants with it, and she asked Rav Moshe, are the pants now fleshic? Meaning, do they now have this status of, say, meat pants, right? Which, there's no, it, it doesn't at all. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very sincere question, but in terms of Torah, it makes no sense whatsoever, the question, right? And he explained to her that it doesn't, that, you know, if he wanted to wear these pants at a dairy meal, for instance, or if he spilled milk on them, that there's no issue whatsoever. And of course there isn't. So, but someone watched Rav Moshe, Rav Moshe explain and answer and take, you know, very patiently answer the question. And they, they, they asked him afterwards, you know, that question was so ridiculous. Why did, you, why did you, like, lavish so much attention in terms of giving, like, a really, you know, very serious and, you know, sincere answer to it? And he said, because it was so beautiful that she was asking. And if I didn't give a, a full, proper answer to the question, then maybe she's not going to ask the question the next time. You see? So... so it's so important to ask. And if you have um, children, and we're all raising ourselves as well, really one of the parts of um, educating uh, anybody, really, but I think especially a child, is to empower them to ask these type of questions. Because that creates a relationship with the Rav also. And, and, and also it, it, it conditions a person to remove themselves from doubt, which is a, a place that without doubt, you open yourself up much more to joy, to simcha, because there's not this nagging thing going on in your head all the time, which can really become a depressing force uh, eventually. So you have to kind of get rid of those things, you know? So, so anyway, I'll just tell you one more thing. And this is something that we can, you can uh, think about on your own, and, which is that the language of the, of the uh, Mishnah that says, take upon yourself a rav, and it doesn't say make a friend. The language is actually very shocking. It says buy a friend. <laughs> so why on earth would it say buy a friend? Like, you know, you know I remember when I was growing up, one of the, uh, I saw this sitcom one time where it's like, and I think this storyline got repeated on other shows where that one of the children didn't have any friends and then he makes this great friend and then he finds out at the end of the episode the mother paid the person to hang out with the kid and the kid is devastated and, you know, like, when you think of, like, what's a friend? And by the way, you want to hear a great... I'll give you two great definitions before we get back to the buying. Two great definitions of what a friend is from Rip Shlomo that he said at different times. One is... Now listen to this. This is very, very strong. He said, you know what a real friend is? Someone who you can tell good news to. Do you hear that? Do you, do you hear the depth of that? Because a lot of people are so afraid this person's going to be jealous, that person's going to be jealous. And so something beautiful happens to you and you're afraid to share it. Right? So a good friend is someone who you can tell good news to. And then you should ask yourself, am I a good friend? Like, forget about, do I have a good friend? That's one big question. Do I have someone who I can share good news with who's not going to be jealous? But I think the bigger question, the bigger point that comes out in this is that, are you a good friend? Can you hear the good news from someone else and not to become jealous? 
You know, because Reb Shlomo said at another point, if you can't have joy for another person, you don't have a concept of what joy is. Right? And, you know, just to give you a very mundane uh, illustration of this, I think I made the point already, but I'll just say it anyway, is that if someone buys something new, whatever it is, and they have something and you like it, and, you know, in a perfect world, you would have a similar thing, right? He didn't use your money for that. <laughs> that, that thing that they got, that didn't come out of your pocket, right? So what are you upset about? Not, not only that, but that's not the last one. You know, there are others like that. Okay, so you don't have to worry. Okay, that's one definition of friend. I'll tell you another definition of friend from Reb Shlomo, which is that, is that a good friend is someone who makes you want to be a better person. Right? Now listen to this. He says, a best friend is someone who, when you're in their presence, you're already a better person. <laughs> Say that again. A good friend is someone who, when you're with them, makes you want to be a better person. But a best friend is someone, when you're with them, you're already a better person. <laughs> yeah. So again, how good would it be to be a good friend or a best friend, right? To be able to somehow exude a positiveness or a level of inspiration that just like, people just want to be better, you know? That's, that's, that's an awesome thing. Okay. So now let's get back to this idea, and we're going to wrap it up, about how can the Mishnah say, buy yourself a friend? So I'll tell you, Rashi, right? The Rashi on that is that, you know what it means, he says? Buy yourself books, because books are the best friends. Okay, that's, that's, that's Rashi. That's just one level of it, right? And, and by the way, I, I always just, I, I always just uh, love this so much. My, my sister was getting her PhD, actually, in educational psychology. And um, she read this to me one time in one of her uh, textbooks. What is reading, right, since we're talking about books? I thought this was an amazing definition of reading. Reading is externally guided thinking. Reading is externally guided thinking. It's an interesting definition. So, so you know, so a, a, a book, you can take it wherever you, where you like, and it's always there, and you can read it, and it's companionship. Okay, that's one level. But really, we're talking about people right now, you know? So what does it mean by a friend? So I, I just kind of want to give my own kind of little take on it, you know, which is... We said that um, we said that a, a friend is really someone who's biased towards you, right? That's that's someone who's like, you know, like I tell you something. I knew this person one time, right? I was just getting to know this person, and I liked them a lot. And they were saying to me, "This person's mad at me, and that person's mad at me." And I'd listen to it, and I'd say, ah, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. And then they'd tell me, this person's mad at me, and I'd say, that person doesn't know what they're talking about either, right? And then as I got to know them better, I realized they're a jerk. <laughs> you know? It's like, no wonder everyone's mad at this person. <laughs> but in the beginning, I was totally biased toward them. You know what I mean? And that's really a good friend, is someone who should take your side. They, they should take your side. That's what it means, a friend, right? 
So, so now with that in mind, that they are biased, and that that bias is a positive thing, right? I want to give just a little kind of like a little kind of like side take on that. It's almost as though you're bribing them because the, the act of bribing distorts judgment. And in the actual court system, there's a Torah mitzvah. You're not allowed to give a gift to a judge because the act of giving a gift to someone influences them positively on your behalf. And a judge in a courtroom situation is not supposed to be biased. They're supposed to look at you both as equal and just try to get to the truth. So if you give a gift to the judge, then he's going to be favoring you. Even if he says, no, I won't let that influence me. The Torah is telling you that a gift inherently influences someone. And there's a famous story, and I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the rabbi, but to show you how far this idea goes in Torah, the story goes like this. There was one of the great rabbis, and he has two litigants before him. And he says, okay, let me think about the judgment. I'll get back to you. And for the life of him, he couldn't figure out like, like, who, like what, the, what the proper decision is. And he's walking around and he can't figure it out. And he goes back to his study and he sees that in the pocket of his coat, one of the litigants slipped some money in an envelope in his coat. So he had been bribed but he didn't even know that he had been bribed. But the very act of having bribed him, spiritually speaking, was, was jamming his radar in terms of coming up with the proper decision. Isn't that interesting? So they say that just, that forget about even if, if you give someone a gift, even if they haven't received the gift yet, that it influences them somehow. That's, that's, that's a true story that's told. So now I'm talking about revisiting the Mishnah, buy yourself a friend, right? But now we're talking about the positive aspect of this, right? Which is that if you are nice to a friend, if you give them a gift, you take them out for lunch, you remember their birthday, whatever it is, those type of things positively influences them and makes them biased. But that bias is what makes them your friend. <laughs> they are supposed to take your side. That's what makes them a friend. So, so treat your friends right, <laughs> right? That's That's... That's, uh, that would be a, a, a nice uh, lesson from that. And um, we'll just wrap it up and just, uh, let's just review for two seconds. So, so what did we say? We said that, that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, right? The Beis Amigdash, that was the portal between heaven and earth. We said that it was, like the Ramban says, the ongoing recreation of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. We said that the narrative flow in the Torah itself was going from us, you know, understanding the oneness of God, that's like the Abos and the tribes, to being slaves in Egypt, to getting out and getting the Torah. And now we're not just making a dwelling place for God in terms of a physical structure, we're turning the entire world into a dwelling place for God. And what did we say from the Sfarno? That in the end of days, all of us individually, as people ourselves, will have the status of Mishkan again. Right? It won't just be a building. It will also be us. And what did we say about the Aaron? That the Aaron is Or Nun, right? It's that vessel which holds the light of the Shara Hamishim, the 50th gate. And of course, the Torah was also given on the 50th day that we left Egypt. And what else did we say? That Torah is Truma, is Torah Mem. It's the Torah of the 40th day. 
and Mem describes the whole birthing process because we get the Torah inside of our mother's womb and that's our individual mission in addition to our national mission. And we forget that. We forget that mission by design so that we can earn it back. And when we earn it back, what we're supposed to do, then we remember with even greater strength um, and meaning really what it is that we're supposed to do because we've accomplished that truth. We've achieved that truth through our own hard work. Okay, should be a great, great day, great week, great year. Amen, amen. Should announce our wisdom tribe experience this afternoon. Yeah. Which is uh, one thirty to whatever. Sounds